You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 15th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Tens of thousands of student employees of the University of California remain on strike this evening. The California Report goes on campus to hear them explain the hardships that put them on the picket line. Nevada County releases a report on the economic impact of the proposed mine. Water guy Steve Baker offers upbeat fire news. And Mark Cuniberti deconstructs the crypto craze in his Money Matters commentary. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. About 48,000 union-backed employees of the University of California remain on strike at UC Merced, the system's newest campus. Employees are calling on the UC regents to raise wages so they can afford housing. KVPR's Esther Quintanilla reports. One, two, three, four. We won't take this anymore. Merced County is one of the most inexpensive places to live in the state. But with inflation and the rising cost of rent, the financial burden for student employees is too much to bear. It used to be very cheap to be able to rent apartments here, and now it's not that way anymore. That's Albert Benedetto. He's a graduate student studying physics and makes just over $38,000 a year as a teaching assistant. He and the union are demanding salary increases up to $54,000 a year for academic student employees, $70,000 for postdoctorate students, and $33 an hour for undergraduate employees. Ivy Pipersburg makes nearly $18 an hour as a writing tutor. Even though she gets paid higher than the minimum wage, she says it's just not enough to make ends meet. That I can only imagine what it's like to be in a Berkeley or to be at an L.A. or to be at a Santa Barbara where they're really feeling it. Negotiations between the union and the university have been ongoing since last year. The UC has made counteroffers saying it's, quote, responsive to union priorities. For the California Report, I'm Esther Quintanilla in Merced. More than 100 miles north, reporter Jean Zamora introduces us to one of the strikers at UC Berkeley. It's being called the biggest academic strike in the history of American higher education and the largest work stoppage in the U.S. this year. Strikers, represented by the United Auto Workers, are disrupting businesses on UC campuses at a pivotal time in the semester. Isaac Crone is a Ph.D. candidate that studies reptiles. Right now, uh, as a graduate student researcher, uh, I'm working on publishing several papers with my lab, some of my own research, and just... Uh, you know, trying to actually do the work uh, to get the Ph.D., which I haven't been able to do because I've had to teach every semester to get money. He says that he can't afford to rent an apartment of his own with his salary. He makes about $24,000 a year in a city where, according to Zillow, the average rent is nearly $3,000 a month. So Crone rents a room. Kind of. I pay, like, a little over 800 a month, but I also, like, I have to set up a room because I live in a, a front room with no like door on it. I had to set up a wall for that and I've been living there for, for four years because if I move anyplace else, my rent will be half of my income. The strikers have a long list of demands, including transit reimbursement and childcare payments. But Chrome says higher wages tops the list for just about everyone he's picketing with. 
The strike is open-ended, so the negotiating and striking could go on for days, maybe even weeks. Out here, uh, everyone out here is prepared to last one day longer than the university can last. For its part, the UC system put out a statement that it's committed to continuing negotiations and that it recognizes the important contributions of its academic workers, like Chrome. For the California Report, I'm Jean Zamora in Berkeley. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. The office that offers fiscal and policy advice to the state legislature is out with a new report on the risks posed by increasing levels of wildfire smoke. KQED's Dan Brecky reports. The new report from the Legislative Analyst's Office recaps a lot of what we already know. Wildfire smoke is becoming more prevalent. It's harmful to breathe, and it's possible to take steps to reduce the danger, such as programs to provide air purifiers and opening clean air centers. The report also notes that prescribed burns can be expected to reduce the overall effects of smoke by heading off catastrophic wildfires. The LAO concludes that smoke is here to stay and urges consideration of measures to protect future Californians. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. Today marks one week since Election Day, yet multiple statewide and municipal races remain in limbo. Lots of Californians have been wondering, why is it taking so long to count our ballots? CalMatters politics reporter Ben Christopher has some answers. The main reason is that California, like a handful of states across the West mostly, sends every voter a ballot in the mail. And it just takes longer to count mail-in ballots. You have to take it out and compare the signature on the envelope to the one on file to make sure that it matches. On top of that, California also has other specific laws on the books. You can register to vote on Election Day. Voters can cast provisional ballots if they mess up the one they were sent. If a signature on the ballot doesn't match the one on file, counties reach out to the voter to verify that it was actually the voter that voted. These are all laws intended to make it as easy as possible to vote, but they do slow down the process even further. That was Ben Christopher with CalMatters. Thousands of Swifties woke up early this morning to snag Taylor Swift presale tickets for her highly anticipated Eras tour. Best believe I'm still bejeweled when I walk in the room. I can still make the whole place shimmer. And when I meet the band, they ask, do you have a man? I can still say I don't remember. Unfortunately for some of them, Ticketmaster experienced an outage just minutes before the tickets were set to go on sale. Fans took to Twitter complaining they weren't able to access the site at all, while others said the website was denying accounts that were verified. As a born-again Taylor Swift fan, I can say I'm not jealous of these Swifties who are experiencing these issues. I knew it wouldn't even be worth it for me to try. It is unclear if Ticketmaster will pause the sale of tickets until they're back online, but until then, I'm sure a bunch of Swifties are eagerly waiting to snag their tickets. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, November 15th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening.
Turning to regional news, this morning, Nevada County released a 90-page analysis of the potential costs and benefits of the proposed reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine by Rise Grass Valley. The County Board of Supervisors had contracted with the Robert D. Niehaus firm to conduct an independent economic study of the highly controversial project. It examines the possible economic and fiscal consequences for local businesses and public services, tax revenues, and residential property values. You can read the entire report on the county's website, nevadacountyca.gov. According to the study, the project's potential costs would include an increased need for public services. Benefits would include increased economic activity, employment, wages, and tax revenue. The report does not address environmental impacts, which were analyzed in a draft EIR. Risegrass Valley estimates that its annual payroll expenditures for the project would total about $38 million for 312 jobs. That would include 213 local hires and 99 non-local hires, with an average $122,000 in wages and benefits per job. The report estimates that at full operation, the mine project would result in yearly output of about $202 million in Nevada County. The portion generated by Rise Grass Valley that would benefit the local community was estimated at about $61 million. The report found no evidence that the mine would affect residential property values. The report notes that a survey of licensed real estate professionals in Nevada County indicated that most believe the project's impact on local property values would be permanent and negative. The real estate professionals surveyed also believe that the draft environmental impact report understates the potential environmental effects of the mine. According to a statement released this morning by Nevada County, the Niehaus firm will hold a public webinar on December 15th at 6 p.m. The webinar will include an overview of the report's findings, followed by questions and answers. Attendees are required to submit questions in advance online at the Nevada County website. At the risk of belaboring this ongoing story, the Sacramento Bee reports today that the Penn Valley house that caught fire earlier this month was not struck by a meteorite. Clayton Thomas, a captain at the Penn Valley Fire Protection District, told the Bee Monday, I am very confident that a rock from space did not hit this house. Investigators have been examining the cause of the November 4th fire in the Mooney Flat area after an 800-square-foot home on a cattle ranch burned down, killing a dog named Tug and two rabbits. The fire became international news after witnesses described a flash of light and a loud explosion in the area. The home's owner, Dustin Proceda, told KCRA Television he felt an impact and went out to discover his front porch on fire. Captain Thomas said that after examining the wreckage of the home, fire investigators found no evidence of a rock hitting the building. We are not looking at a meteor as a viable option at this point in time, Thomas said. End of story. Or is it? Turning to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service, periods of northeast wind will continue into Wednesday across northern California, and mild dry days will persist into next week. The forecast for this evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low in the mid-30s and northeast winds gusting up to 20 miles per hour. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 62 and winds up to 13 miles per hour subsiding in the afternoon. Wednesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 33. 
In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, patchy freezing fog is expected tonight, otherwise clear with a low of 11. Wednesday is expected to be sunny with a high near 41 and a low of 16. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland will be clear with a low around 38 and north-northwest winds around 8 miles per hour with gusts up to 20 miles per hour. Wednesday will be sunny with a high in the mid-60s and a low of 37. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Balancing everyone's water needs is an ongoing source of tension in our state, especially in the midst of historic drought. In this conversation with KVMR's Paul Emery, hydrologist Steve Baker delves into the iconic Western clash between farmers and environmentalists. Plus, Steve has good news about the fire risk outlook that might take some of the worry out of our fall and winter. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Hey, Steve, after that great rain we had and snow in a lot of areas um, last week, we should be in pretty good shape for fire safety. Uh, At least I think so. What do you think? What's your take on it? Well, you know, up on Banner Mountain, we measured about two and a quarter inches of rain. That's just Banner Mountain. It varied a bit as you travel around our our county but we had six inches of snow so the at this point the national interagency fire center this was last thursday they uh stated that we had now have a seven-day window of no significant fire risk so yay yay i'm glad to hear that everyone's on pins and needles when when as we're waiting for that time they're also considering the next four months to be normal fire potential so you know we can take a sigh of relief and uh really enjoy our fall and winter but keep our eyes open (laughs) yeah always what else do our water managers look at as you know right at this time of year yeah well the california department of water resources is setting up monitoring devices down there in lake oroville and also the thermolito diversion pool they're they're looking at at measuring temperature dissolved oxygen and even looking at the clarity of the water every 15 minutes until around May or June. That's when the runoff season ends. So it's a lot of monitoring is going on right now. Seems like a lot of angst uh, between farmers and environmentalists uh, right now. Tell us about this. Yeah, you know, that's because the farmers feel that government protects species at the expense of the food that people eat. And uh, uh, that weighs heavy. Now, we have to remember that California manages it's surface water under the prior appropriative doctrine. In other words, it's a system, a management system, based on the priority of use. And they define priority of use as uh, looking at when the person or company first uh, started using the surface water, you know, the lake, the pond, the creek, the river, uh, where that diversion point was, where they took it from that that. Uh, surface water uh, location, look at the volume of water that's used in an entire year, and also look at the type of use that that water was, uh, was utilized. Now, this is a senior water right. And if you have a senior water right, that's always been the strongest water right of the West, you know. But then back in 2009, amidst a three-year drought, and then also that's when the Endangered Species Act really kicked in, 
the senior water rights uh, holders then had to take a second position behind the environment. First time ever that that happened. And that didn't go over very well, as one would expect. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife, U.S. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration Fishery Service, that's uh, NOAA, and all the state counterparts, they all administered the Endangered Species Act. So now the farming and ag people feel that they are the endangered species, and they are taking a big hit, that's for sure. But it's it's the continued uh, problem that, that we all are grappling with. Uh, everybody needs water. That's been the story for a long time, hasn't it, Steve? Everybody needs water. It's true. It's true. But, you know, we need the ground truth that, uh, you know, not, right now 90% recovery rate is what they're seeing in over 100 species. So the Endangered Species Act is being effective. But at the same time, we're taking some food supply hits, and we're going to notice that even more so as we go into the future. So ground truthing is going to be a big part of this equation. And that becomes a political issue. Well. That's all political. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. Crypto might be the currency of the future, but its recent path toward possible implosion is an old, old story, Mark Cunaberti says. In today's Money Matters commentary, Mark gives us some historical perspective on the crypto craze in light of its recent journey from asset mania to asset insolvency. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. I've always said cyber coins like Bitcoin or Vapor. And every so often I am confirmed that I am not far off the mark. I also get a lot of hate mail when I negatively cover Bitcoin. So goes it for a financial analyst covering the world of finance and trying to help people. No, Bitcoin isn't all vapor, but it's certainly more vapor than it was the last time I did a newscast on it. My radio shows and articles on Bitcoin started when it was about $60,000 a coin. Then I penned another article at around 41000 again at 30000 another article in radio show when it breached 19000 on the downside, of course, and last week it fell another 15% into the 16000s. When my emails light up shortly after these newscasts and articles hit the newswires, I get mail from the usual suspects, people that own it, and the usual comments like, I don't understand it. If you read any of my crypto articles or newscasts, they usually begin with the statement, I don't fully understand. So I'm not sure why they reiterate that in their emails to me. I mean, I already said that. I will say it again. I don't fully understand what Bitcoin is, nor do probably 90% of the people that own it. What I do understand, however, and likely my detractors don't, is what an asset mania is. Yes, I get it. Bitcoin is a decentralized currency that can't be destroyed. It's in cyberspace or even on board a localized wallet that you can carry around and supposedly the currency of the future. Well, on the currency of the future part, I will add, not in its present form. Currencies have to retain a store of value. That translates to being stable. 
and that means in both directions, up and down. Bitcoin and those other vape coins, as I call them, are anything but stable. In fact, with 20,000 cyber coins now available, likely most of them are just a Ponzi scheme. My opinion, of course, the latest cause for my recent musing today is that the news, one of the largest exchange where people trade and store Bitcoin, is in trouble. Financial trouble, of course, and is there any other type when it comes to cybercoin? What happened was, on November 8th, an article came out on a crypto news service suggesting that the CEO of one of the largest cybercoin exchanges, FTX, Sam Brinkman-Fried, was using the firm's funds, ACA clients, to bail out one of the FTX hedge funds that it owned, a highly illegal transaction. Apparently, Brinkman-Fried said as much. One hour later, he admitted in an interview, I... Up. That sounds pretty clear to me as an admission. Bitcoin plummeted another 15% on the news. Then on November 11th, they filed bankruptcy. Then good old Sam Boy stepped down. Whoops. Hence today's newscast on the dangers of cybercoin by yours truly. It wasn't but a few months ago similar shenanigans surrounded Bitcoin and their exchanges, which rocked the cybercoin universe in what is becoming a familiar theme here on Money Matters. No, I don't hate cybercoins. I actually own a tiny amount of them, or at least I did. I haven't checked lately and kind of kissed off those funds when I bought those coins, and I bought them at where else? FTX. Ironic, isn't it? No, I don't fully understand Bitcoin, but I know a mania when I see one, and there have been many throughout mankind's financial history. They all have the same story. The early money makes a ton, then imitations pop up. How about 20,000 cyber coins right now? Everybody believes they can only go in one direction, which is up. Celebrities, banks, and businesses start to participate, and they have. Then crookery starts to pop up. Prices start to flatten. Illiquidity in dealers begins to appear, followed by bankruptcies. Then the news wires are flooded with denials and insurances by remaining participants all is fine we are here. Then more firms fail and the entire thing implodes with devastating losses to many. Then regulators dissect the whole mess and the event is complete. I don't know if cyber coins will run the gamut and implode entirely, nor does anyone else. It might go up in a grand ball of vapor or it might become the greatest currency of all. My prognostication is the vapor part, if you haven't guessed. But now ask yourself, given the above description on all the other previous manias in history, do you see any resemblance here? I sure do. That does it for today's Money Matters. This newscast expresses my opinion only and is not meant as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell anything, nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor, nor this media outlet, its staff members, or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors 1979 in California insurance license, OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kunipu. That's our newscast for Tuesday, November 15th. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley, stocking greenhouse coverings and components, down-to-earth amendments, IPM products, and more. Open Monday through Friday, 10 to 5, K-A-R-M-E-N-S garden.com. And Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. 
serving Northern California counties and San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weeknight at 6. If you missed any of our newscasts or interviews, you can listen to them at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Please join us Wednesday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.